But you know, once, after humble Brazil, I saw the ocean so darkened with blood it was black, and the sun fainting away over the lip of the sky. We'd put in at Fortaleza, but a few of us had lines out for a bit of idle fishing. It was me had the first strike. A shark it was. Then there was another, and another shark again. It all about the sea was made of sharks, and more sharks still, and no water at all. My shark had torn himself from the hook, and the center, maybe the stain it was, and him bleeding his life away, drove the rest of mad. Then the beasts took to eating each other. In their frenzy, they ate at themselves. You could feel the lust of murder like a wind stinging your eyes. And you could smell the death reeking up out of the sea. I never saw anything worse until this little picnic tonight. And you know, there wasn't one of them sharks in the whole crazy pack that survived. Welcome to Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host, Mike. And it is 1946. Uh, Orson Welles is trying to raise some money so he can get some costumes back for one of his stage shows. Uh, he phones Harry Cohn, uh, the, the co-founder of Columbia Pictures, uh, for help. Now, his relationship with Cohn is a bit rocky because <laughs> Cohn was pissed at Wells for marrying Rita Hayworth uh, because he thought that it damaged her sex symbol status. It's like, oh, no, now the everyday man thinks that he can't sleep with Rita Hayworth. Now he has zero chance because she's married. So he's pissed at Wells for doing that. But ultimately, Cohn relents and he gives Wells the money for his uh, his, his costumes. But he makes him agree to film a picture for Columbia for free. And that picture is 1947's The Lady from Shanghai. And that's how we how we come, come to our uh, film for this month, the first one that kicks off our trilogy. What did you think, Mike, of The Lady from Shanghai? And was this your first time watching it? First time, first time watch. Um, I don't really know why, because I, I like this type of material uh, either in... Uh, book form or in film um i i like the sort of cheeky i guess criminal tale the uh we've discussed before i guess the hitchcock's uh the wrong man uh in this instance i guess it's like uh the horny man <laughs> and i like those <laughs> yeah. those thrillers where they they know better but they they just you know just lead with her dick here and um rita hayworth is pretty good uh bait i guess uh to find yourself ensnared into some sort of uh, criminal plot. Uh, I can't say why that I've never uh, watched it. Here's well. Do you know like 
uh, in more recent times, uh, I guess James Cameron would be guilty of it. Or when you get into stuff like higher frame rate, uh, seeing it in 3D, seeing it in IMAX, that sort of thing. Sometimes there can be a film where they hype up, like, this is the correct way to see it. That if that's not available to you, I'm like, well, I guess I'm not seeing the real thing. So what's what's the point? Um, I'm thinking of, I think Robert Zemeckis did The Walk, I think, with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And they were really pushing that. The 3D. But I didn't see it the way that it was intended. Like, on the, the you know, I was not going to travel like an hour and a half to see it on this giant screen. Uh, for, for, you know, that sounds silly now. The Walk starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt is not something that <laughs> years later I think people are kicking themselves over. To get back to Orson Welles, though, unfortunately with his somewhat limited filmography, given what he could have produced, um, given money, uh, support, or just even his own uh, maybe deflating his ego a, a little bit, uh, I've always felt like oh, I shouldn't watch that because all I've read about it is it's not what Orson Welles intended. So what's what's the point? Uh, you and I recently discussed uh, Off Mic, which, you know, why would we ever do that when we're talking movies? Like, this is, it's all <laughs> content. Touch of Evil. And that's one that I had watched before, I think, the 1998 restoration using Welles, using his notes on what he wanted to do. And I didn't like it. I didn't like when I first watched Touch of Evil. I was like, and you know, I'm a punk teenager, but I was like, ah, that's, this kind of sucks. And it wasn't until I saw the restored version that I kind of got it. That I was, I, I held it in high esteem. So the lady from Shanghai, unfortunately, does not have that sort of restoration. I believe the footage and the like extra hour that was cut uh, is lost uh, totally. Is that correct? Yeah. Th- this. Also, uh, a film of his uh, met with uh, the same kind of reception that, unfortunately, Orson Welles had to deal with with many of his work. I mean, the the biggest, the holy grail of film is the lost footage for The Magnificent Ambersons. And even it's, in its butchered form, that film is a masterpiece. So I can't even imagine uh, uh, what that extra 40 minutes or so, I think, um, uh, adds to the film. As a fan of Welles, where do you sit knowing that you're not seeing what he himself was proud of, that we're seeing a very limited uh, outside influence of what, what he intended. Um, and I mean, with something like this and, and uh, his other work, that's, that's all we have. So it's like, it's this or nothing. So if not for this podcast and you, I would, I guess I was fine with no lady from Shanghai up until this point <laughs> in my life, if I couldn't get the Wells version. Um, but where do, where do you sit with that? Uh, knowing that's not really, I guess the director's vision. Now here's the thing. I may this may be kind kind of a hot take. I don't know. I think Orson Welles is a great director. I mean, obviously, I, I hold him in very high regard. That's definitely a hot take. Web. No one has ever <laughs> said that before. <laughs> uh, he used to be uh, kind of like the be all end all for me. I I want to say he kind of mm. still is, but because he went through such shit. You know, throughout his career, uh, uh, that he was never really able to make the films he wanted to make or they were taken away from him. He has become a bit of a mythological figure. And so because you have these fragments of, of his work, they put him into like an upper level for me. He's become this idol, someone who was, a, a, you know, a kind of a martyr almost uh, because you never got to see his final versions, like true versions of his films outside of Citizen Kane. It seems like, well, I mean, he's even better 
than with these films. And these films are great. And he could have been even better. So for me, they kind of put him a step above so many of the films, like the, the Spielbergs of the world, who are also wonderful. But they, they don't have anybody telling them what to do. The Coens, the Coens have never, ever had notes or, or something. They, and they've said, like, mm. we have gotten very lucky in life that we have essentially got to make the films we want to make without any real interference. And so with with Wells, the fact that he had to overcome all of that makes him an even cooler person in the history of film. Uh, Lady from Shanghai is an, just another great example because when it was filmed and it was test screened, audiences reacted really poorly. Cohn thought it was incomprehensible. Uh, he wanted the whole thing reworked. Uh, and so the idea was actually floated around that w- let's take the trial section of the film, the courtroom drama, and do the whole film as a courtroom drama and use all the other footage oh as God. F- as flashbacks and then to try and have like connective tissue uh uh, add in some expository dialogue and narration that explains the major events of the film Uh, obviously that that idea was abandoned so they did do reshoots they did do re-edits redubbing of dialogue was even done and that's something that orson welles has had to deal with his entire career uh so to the point where ocean wells got bored and tired of the film, and ultimately he's like, you know what, I don't really like this anyways, and he was kind of done with it before it even came out, and sure enough, it came out and it sank. That's kind of my problem with Wells. Uh, there's my hot take, is he seems, he seems kind of lazy at a certain point, like I was, <laughs> like, I was reading something to the effect that he just, he didn't ever look at dailies as he was shooting, he just sent it off, yeah. like sent it to the studio to edit and then was appalled that they were editing it in a way that, or having comments on the dailies that he didn't feel were respectful to his work. But I'm like, you didn't, you didn't take the initiative <laughs> to be like the caretaker <laughs> of this. You're like, ship it out. <laughs> it's done. <laughs> and he does seem to certainly have run very hot and cold with his, his works where he's like all in and co- he conjures up uh, this fantastic imagery and, is certainly the very premise of the lady from Shanghai, as far as its conception was uh, I've blown through my budget and lost my creative partner uh, on this Broadway musical. Uh, Let me do something on the cheap. He should know himself to know you're not going to do it necessarily on the cheap. Like you're going to have some, (laughs) like what you're propositioning this man for is I'll give you genre fare and I'll bring my movie star wife with me. Reed Hayworth. But you have to know yourself, Orson, that you're going you're gonna want to make an Orson Welles movie. You're not you're not just gonna be uh you know, a hired player just coming in. However, I did read further that uh most of the budget overruns while you know Wells was you know, Wells on the set and I guess was very combative and difficult to work with, like for other actors and whatnot. Yep. Um had a run in with painters, uh, because the studio wouldn't pay for their like triple overtime to paint a repaint a set on the weekend. So Wells and his buddy did it himself, which considering it's a union shop, they still had to pay the painters for not doing the work anyway, because (laughs) no one else was supposed to do it. Um, But I did read that it was mainly most of the sort of financial loss was in Harry Cohn trying to rework it and the delay um, when it's, it's very much like a, you know, Zack Snyder being our, our modern Orson Welles. It's very much like a justice league where it's like, (laughs) Oh, God. <laughs> Look, 
financially, just sink or swim with what you have. This may not work, but trying to constantly apply, throw more money at it and band-aid it, you're just going to lose more. And the people who dig this stuff, you know, like history has borne out that Wells and Snyder are geniuses. (laughs) 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 The unfortunate thing is that there was no HBO Max for Orson Welles back in 1947. (laughs) That's the true crime. (laughs) Let's give a lot of props to Paramount, because when Mother came out, they were like, motherfucker, we gave Darren Aronofsky all this money, and look what happened. And then the following uh, week after release, they were, they put up all those quotes on, on their uh, TV spots, like, watch the worst movie or the most contemptible thing. Like, they leaned into it. They're I, like, you know what? This is you. what we have. I respect it because they just released it wide. They're like, you know what? There is no slow build for this. Just throw it out there. And hopefully the few that like it will buy up all the 4K copies that we have <laughs> on the printing <laughs> press. Um, but to answer your question as far as the actual like enjoyment of the film, I kind of, kind of did. Um, like, it's unfair to criticize like the um, ability to read Wells work here when someone came and chopped it up. Uh, so Cone saying that it's confusing. I, I mean, a little, I guess my main criticism were the close-ups, which I found later on that Wells didn't shoot any close-ups and they had to redo that. Like <laughs> the close-ups are, uh, offensive to me. Like it's usually a bunch of sweaty men, like spitting in your face. <laughs> And the whole time I was motherfucking Wells, like, God damn, <laughs> why do we have to be this close to these ugly people? Rita Hayworth, I had no problem with. That's where I'd agree with Cone. Um, I also didn't have a problem with the uh, her going blonde and the, the short uh, Bob. I liked it. I dug it. I don't know what, but I guess uh, back then people were more, I don't know, is this the, uh, uh, this and what, Felicity, when Carrie Russell cut off her curls? Is that, <laughs> like, I'm, I was trying to think of a modern, and I think that's the only modern version of people having to fucking freak out about a woman's hair like not being we can't even tell it's carrie russell anymore like i i don't know maybe i guess it mattered a lot at the time but um i had no problem with it like uh, i think hayworth is great i think you know i'm not much on wells as an actor i actually i feel very much the same like i already compared him to Zack snyder now i'm gonna compare him to woody (laughs) allen i prefer their work when they're (laughs) when they're hidden in some way like i like him a lot in touch of evil where he can go big as the you know supporting player, the the uh, antagonist. Uh, I don't know if I like Orson Welles as like a uh, a mimbo buffoon, because <laughs> <laughs> he seems incapable of allowing himself to be dumb. He's doing stupid things here, but he's always got like a smart ass comment here. It's very Robert Redford. He's always winning each scene by putting someone in their place. But when he's putting them in their place, he's still doing the stupid acts that they're asking him for. He just doesn't seem to act like he is. Uh, so that his character is very interesting. I just don't know if I like Orson Welles uh, in it. And I definitely don't like the thought of him being married to Rita Hayworth. That's also offensive to me. <laughs> well, you actually hit upon something uh, that I think is one of those central themes that Orson Welles likes to play around with. And that's the the survival of the innocent or the fools. And that's kind of what the Michael character here is. Uh, he's kind of an innocent guy. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, I've killed. Yeah, but you, you killed in war. Yeah. You know, that that's unfortunately kind of acceptable. And he's filled with such contempt for the Arthur Bannister, kind of his employer here, but he can't help be drawn to Elsa. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned, like, yeah, she, the short hair and the, it, it, I, I think 
that that plays right really well into the 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 la belle dame sans merci the the beautiful lady with uh without mercy the the classic femme fatale i think that works for her really well uh he he michael believes that uh, the the unchanging nature of human beings like you can't change who you are but he is still thinking that what if i do this and this and this and with this ameliorate uh, the cruel nature that Elsa kind of seems to embody. Uh, he wants that Hollywood ending, the, the sailing into the sunset with his gal at his side and, and five grand burning a hole in his pocket. Which was about 65, 70 grand, I guess. It's, I always, with old movies, I always look up, okay, what does that mean? Because they're saying five grand, you know, <laughs> to admit to murdering someone, which... <laughs> I don't know. Doesn't doesn't seem like it's going to take you a lot, a lot. But even when I looked up the the you know the uh, currency exchange going back to the 1940s, it was still I was like 65 to 70 grand. This seems like an awful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't think I'm gonna put my name on that piece of uh, crucible paper there. You know, like <laughs> at least Daniel Day Lewis was being threatened with death, and he still wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's funny to me that again I don't I don't know how politics worked or how I guess the laws worked uh, in that time period but it seems like if you're going to confess to something even if they can't find the body you're still going to get in trouble and it plays right into the character being kind of a fool and it could be because he's just so drawn to Elsa he's just so in love with this uh, thing that he knows that he can't have what are you doing with his dick Again, yeah, um, and yes, Rita Hayworth is is uh, fantastic. She's the the well traveled woman who seems to have seen all the ugliness of the world, and I like that it's hinted upon. While I guess I would love forty extra minutes, an hour more of this footage, I don't know. I think there's enough there. The whole murder plot, you know, she, she's so motivated by greed and independence. And the whole murder plot is just a way f for her to free herself from you know the shackles of this marriage. Apparently, it, there's a lot going on that is hinted upon, I guess, and not explicit. And so it, it makes the character more enticing that we ne we're always at arm's length from her. Um, and she's great. She embodies the femme fatale really, really brilliantly. It does seem like there are easier, easier ways to make money. As with most of these plots in film, it just seems like, I don't know, like you're rich. Uh, why don't you just like live in another part of the world away from your... Um, gimpy husband, which I, <laughs> I, 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 I read that that was only added the detail. I, I guess it wasn't in the, the source novel or it was part of the casting process that Orson Welles thought that <clears throat> Mr. Banster here, the, um, uh, Everett Sloan, I think is the actor, um, was just basically like had the physical attributes for radio acting <laughs> and, could, and they're still i mean they're still putting his face on the screen but orson wells was really bothered by how he moved uh on film and so they're like look we got to put him on crutches or something just because i can't stand <laughs> walking across the set <laughs> whether it was intentional or not i think it it gives the character that much more depth because uh Bannister is a guy who's like trapped in this life of pain like on every level physically because he's a disfigured individual emotionally he's in this loveless marriage uh, spiritually because he understands that uh, he's merely a checkbook to the world and mm -hmm. he's not like a real human his worth like he he's somebody who is worth more in death than he is in life 
And so it, it's a it's a side role, it's a supporting character that is really fleshed out, and that's kind of what you get with Wells's work. You just gotta chop it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No matter what you think of the work, I think by the end of it, I think it's always helpful to revisit it and really think about it. The film, when I first saw it, I thought it was brilliant because I was in a Wells kick at the time. Like, he could do no wrong. Um, In my most recent watch for this podcast, I was a little underwhelmed. But the more I thought about it, the more I kind of looked into it, the more it grew on me. And so while I don't think it's the classic that I first thought it was, I still really like it for these things that I was able to appreciate, uh, the stuff that really sank in. Uh, and the, the one theme that Wells revisits often, which is really on my mind because uh, you recommended The White Lotus to me, and I'm completely in love with that TV show, uh, and so is my wife, to the point, and my wife doesn't do this. She's been listening to the White Lotus soundtrack over and over, which is... Oh, wow. I was like, who are you, me from 10 years ago? Like, <laughs> this is grotesque. It's a great soundtrack, obviously. But the one theme that I'm in love with right now is the misery of the rich. And that is something that Wells, uh, he revisits in this film the way he did in... Citizen Kane in The Magnificent Ambersons. It is definitely a running theme uh, in his work. And Arthur Bannister, Elsa Bannister, uh, George uh, Grisby, the guy, like, they all are so consumed with money and with with their greed and, and how cruel they are. That that, that whole shark uh, soliloquy that I think uh, Orson Welles had is brilliant. What a wonderful uh, sequence. And, and even, uh, to the, I think it's an Elsa, it's Elsa who's, who proclaims, like, why should anybody want to live around us? Uh, so, yeah, the misery of the rich, very prominent throughout this film, uh, very prominent throughout Welles' work. Uh, did that, uh, is that something that you gravitate towards? Because I've noticed uh, the works that you like you also like seeing you know kind of the rich uh get their comeuppance oh not just in works of fiction in real life too i i (laughs) detest the financially successful uh i mean the biggest sin of the characters in the lady from shanghai is all these people are rich they're fucking floating around the world talking shit to each other uh these beautiful locales you have the laborers carrying them and uh taking them on this picnic they they leave a yacht and go to the beach and they're like no 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 no. we need to kind of go inland a little bit we need to get some canoes we need to you know pack our food in there and you look at it and all they do is they get there and they just hate on each other uh and how do they want to escape they want to do even less like they're not <laughs> like i'm like what what sort of PTO did you use to get these days off? Like, you, <laughs> like, you know, you're saying like, man, the world is just chaffing my ass. Uh, you have one of the, the, the guys, uh, in this, this world, that I guess is the, you know, the initial target, but he has his own targets and he's trying to, to get stupid wells to go along with it. Is this, this weird, as you mentioned, this sort of Ashley Judd double jeopardy legalese where it's like, no, no, no. Like I'm, I'm going to be alive. You're not going to kill me. You're going to say that you killed me and then I'm going to disappear. But since you said that you killed me, no one will look for me. And since they won't look for me, they'll never find a body. So you'll never go to jail. And, the whole time, if I'm Wells, I'm like, just get out of my face. You were too close to my face right now. Like, I, the sweat is dripping into my mouth. I don't like your bug eyes. And all he's really doing is he just has to, like, eat a little shit from his partner. Like, he just has to hang out with a dude he doesn't like. 
in a beautiful location. And you could just walk away. I mean, the guy's not going to catch you. He'd have to have two guys carry him <laughs> to point his finger and berate you. And that's probably their biggest sin to me is that the only thing they're putting an effort into is crime. It's like they can't enjoy their success. They have to somehow defeat and vanquish other people. So even once they've reached this plateau, that most people would be like, God, if I had that amount of money, I would just enjoy life and I'd travel. They can't. So you bring up the White Lotus. Very similar. A little more sex in the White Lotus, which I'd appreciate. I'm not going to hold that against Wells. You know, the the, the, the times have changed. Uh, I'm sure if this was an HBO Max uh, miniseries. Uh, if this was the uh, Orson Welles, the lady from Shanghai, uh, Rita Hayworth <laughs> would have been forced to do a topless scene by the exact at HBO. There would have been some something that they would have tried to amp this up a little bit. I'm not going to hold that against him. I guess ultimately, like if I'm trying to put it in 1947 or I guess 48 when it actually was released uh, in the states, I think the problem is you don't root for Welles either. I, I think he's too stupid. And, like, I'm trying to compare it to something like Double Indemnity, which also has characters that are doing risky things. But I think they sell it to me more as far as what they think they'll acquire if they go through with this this bet, this gamble. And they seem to work it out as far as how it will work. <laughs> Whereas he just plays it as, I'm confused, <laughs> but I guess I'll do this. Because in essence, it's like, I just want you to stop talking. Like, I just don't want to have to deal with you. <laughs> So even the common man here, there's a little bit of laziness where I feel like as a nines member, you kind of want all parties involved to be punished. Um, even the judge, the incompetence, uh, the, the fucking kangaroo court where you got the attorney <laughs> cross-examining himself since he's been introduced as well. Like, just absurd. And I, I read that, I guess, Cone had a problem with the sort of the humor of the movie. I didn't at all. I like that once we... I think the whole situation's absurd. So I think dive into it have a little dark comedy here <laughs> we're debating the merits of sending one man to death by his own attorney trying to th throw the case <laughs> <laughs> against him i don't know i i was in like it, it took a little bit um but i i i would i'm interested in a longer version but i'm kind of like you i don't know how much i want to hang out with these people for like two and a half hours like an hour and a half i think that i think that's enough for me and to be fair, uh, let's add a little bit of a meta commentary on top of that courtroom scene. As ridiculous as it was, it was very frustrating for all the actors involved because Wells kept changing the script daily. And in that courtroom scene, he would act, he would tell the actors to just improv their lines. And like, this is a fucking Judd Apatow movie. Let's see what we get. Let's see what you can come up with. I challenge you. Which... It's a little more difficult when you're not just doing a marriage comedy or a comedy where Seth Rogen impregnates Catherine Heigl. There's a little bit more you expect. Like, we have to kind of keep our eye on the ball as far as the plot, the intricacy of the story we're telling here. Um, but whatever. I don't, it, it's, uh, there was a review. Let me see if I can find the line. Well, Dave Kerr of the Chicago Reader uh, called it the weirdest great movie ever made. Uh, and you, you do see a lot of, I mean, it's high, it's, I think it's like 84%, I think on Rotten Tomatoes, audience and critics, but even, you know, the good reviews basically are talking about, uh, you kind of have to go along, uh, with its incoherence. Um, here's one from the village voice, uh, for all the violations it suffered, the lady from Shanghai seems strangely coherent, uh, in this current form or rather coherently incoherent in a way that seems quite <laughs> deliberate. 
And I'm like, yeah, I think that's a pretty good uh, description where it's just like, you know, you signed up for this. You signed up for this, this uh, sort of dinner theater charade that all the characters are involved in. And yeah, when Orson Welles uh, is getting the sign from Rita Hayworth's catcher to, to, to swallow the pills in front of him on the table, I was I was like, what? There are pills here? Just, and you have another like random extra just shout, he took the poison pills. And I'm like, sure, he took the poison pills. Go ahead. Um, which leads to much fisticuffs and a chessboard being broken in the judges' chambers, which he's really upset about. Um, all of it's silly. It's fun. It's a really fun movie. At the risk of sounding like a jerk, I will say, at the very least, one thing that kept me rooting for Orson Welles in this one was that it's it's still filmed that he could be filmed shirtless. Uh, when you said he went big in Touch of Evil, he went really big in Touch of Evil. Hell yeah. <laughs> from... Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I appreciate that he <laughs> he still looked like, if not a movie star, somebody that could be put in a movie. You could at least have the, the two forties, the two top buttons down in uh, nineteen forty. Yeah, he was, he was doing that. A deep V was still going on for Orson back then. He still looked like somebody that Rita Hayworth would marry. Mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> we got too far in our fandom. <laughs>